Welcome to True Enough. We are your hosts. I am Catherine Duvall. And I am Brandon McCowan. True Enough is a podcast about true crime. This week's podcast is about the missing Skelton brothers. This case is a sad, tragic story about three missing boys, the Skelton brothers, Andrew, age nine, Alexander, age seven, and Tanner, age five, lived in a small town in Michigan called Morenci. They disappeared in November of 2010 and were reported missing the day after Thanksgiving. The Timeline of Events Friday, November 26, 2010. Andrew is missing with his brothers, Alexander and Tanner. Their mother, Tanya Lynn Zuvers Skelton, had filed for divorce from their father, John Russell Skelton, in September of 2010, and had custody of the boys. John took the boys for agreed visitation on Thanksgiving, November 24, 2010, and never returned them. That last time anyone besides John saw them was at 2.30 p.m. on November 25th, the day before their disappearances were reported. John stated he gave the boys to a woman named Joanne Taylor, whom he had met on the Internet several years before, and asked her to return them to their mother. He said he did this because he planned to commit suicide and didn't want the boys to see it. He stated Joanne was married to a pastor named Mark, drove a white or silver minivan, and lived in either Hillsdale, Michigan, or Jackson County, Michigan. John states that he attempted to hang himself later that day, but survived and was hospitalized, first at a general hospital, then at a psychiatric facility in Ohio. Authorities issued an Amber Alert for the Skelton brothers, but they could find no sign of them and no indication that Joanne Taylor even existed. Police said they believed the boys were in grave danger. They said they believed John's story about Joanne Taylor was fictitious, and something else caused the Skelton children's disappearances. Investigators stated they were investigating the disappearances as homicides, and John was the prime suspect. They said John's blue Dodge Caravan was on the Ohio Turnpike along the Michigan-Ohio border between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. on November 26, and asked anyone who saw it to come forward. Immediately following John's release from the hospital, he was arrested and jailed under suicide watch. He was eventually extradited to Michigan and charged with three counts of felony parental kidnapping, three counts of kidnapping, and three counts of false imprisonment. At a court hearing in December of 2010, he changed his story, saying his sons were in the care of an organization, which he at first refused to name. He later said it was called the United Foster Outreach and Underground Sanctuaries. The police believe no such group exists. The background. Tanya and John Skelton married in 2002, and the family was active with United Methodist Church in Morency. John also has one adult daughter, and Tanya has two daughters from previous marriages. In mid-September of 2010, He withdrew Andrew and Alexander from school and went to Florida without Tanya's permission. He told their school that they were going on vacation, but also implied they wouldn't return and the school might need to forward the children's records. 
Tanya then had to go to Florida and have the authorities there force John under threat of arrest to take the boys back to Michigan. After they got back, Tanya filed for divorce. She said she only did it to secure custody and prevent John from taking the boys out of the area again, and that she and John were in counseling with the hopes of reconciliation. The children had been visiting John on a regular basis with no reported problems. John had previously worked as a long-haul truck driver, but in 2009, he was fired after he was convicted of drunk driving. He had been unemployed ever since. The children's parents were in the middle of a bitter custody battle. Tanya was at one time a registered sex offender. She pleaded guilty to misdemeanor fourth-degree criminal sexual conduct for having a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old neighbor boy in 1998 when she was 32 years old. In response to her divorce filing, John had asked the court to sever her parental rights based on her sex offender status. The judge refused to do so. After the children disappeared, John said that he had feared Tanya was abusing them, but investigators can find no evidence of abuse. Tanya said when she went to their former family home where John was living at the time of the disappearances, many items inside the house had been destroyed. In July of 2011, John took a plea deal with the prosecutors and pleaded no contest to three counts of false imprisonment. The kidnapping charges were dropped. He could have faced life in prison if convicted of the original charges. Instead, he was sentenced to 10 to 15 years in prison, a term that exceeds the state sentencing guidelines. John has stated that his children are still alive, but will never be returned as long as their mother receives custody of them. His relatives and Tanya don't believe he would have harmed the boys. While John was in jail, he spoke to a pastor. John said there was a big blank spot in his brain, like a big dark hole. He didn't know where the boys were. He didn't know what happened. John said he had taken the boys home, and the pastor, of all people, would know what that meant. John later denied saying any of this. Alexander, Andrew, and Tanner all attended Morency Elementary School at the time of their disappearances. Alexander was in third grade, Andrew in first grade, and Tanner in kindergarten. The facts of the case. Tanya received a phone call from John either on Wednesday or Thursday night. John had a thousand questions. He wanted to know about the state of their marriage and what their future was. And Tanya said it was too early to decide. She had no idea. She could hear the children in the background during the phone call. Thursday, November 25th, 2010. The boys are last seen in the backyard of 211 East Congress Street, Morency, Michigan at 2.30 p.m. by neighbor Gail Johnson. That evening, John posts on Facebook, I love my wife very much. May God and Tanya forgive me. Friday, November 26, 2010. The following are unsubstantiated cell phone data. 4.29 a.m. John's cell phone is located moving down toward Ohio, 3.3 miles from home. 5 a.m. John's phone is located near Holiday City, Ohio, a 30-minute drive from the Skelton residence. Just after 5 a.m., no more cell tower hits by that phone. The phone either turned off or died. 
6.34 a.m. to 6.46 a.m., the phone signal pings another tower back near John's house. Back at the house, John sends some texts and emails. John packs some of his belongings, including clothing, and then brings these belongings to his aunt, who lives nearby, and asks her to keep them because he didn't expect to be around. Included in the belongings were kids' winter coats and toothbrushes. Tanya calls John in the morning, asking if she can get the kids early. Tanya was supposed to get the boys back by 3 p.m. that afternoon. John claims they're in Jackson. A van was in his driveway, as noticed by a neighbor. Tanya believes him initially, but John's reasons for being away keep changing. John finally admits that he's home, and the boys are with his friend in Jackson. He says the friend's name is Joanne Taylor. They met on the internet. Tanya wants to know where to meet up with Joanne to get the boys. John calls again and says he broke his foot while cleaning and is heading to the hospital in Ohio. Tanya wants to get Joanne's info to rendezvous and pick up the boys, but John refuses. Tanya then contacts her attorney, and her attorney advises her to wait. 3.01 p.m. Tanya notifies the police about the failure of her children to be returned home from the scheduled visit. The police speak to John, and John claims that on Wednesday, November 24th, in the evening, they all ate fried chicken together and had cake to celebrate Andrew's birthday, watched a karate movie, and then went to bed. Thanksgiving evening, John alleges that he delivered the children to a woman who lives in either Hillsdale or Jackson counties. He claimed to have given the children to Joanne, whom he could not offer many details about. She would then take his children to his parents in Florida. An Amber Alert was immediately raised. Saturday, November 27, 2010, morning. Varenci police officers begin a property search at the Skelton residence at 112 East Congress Street before daybreak Saturday morning. Officers discover the doors nailed shut from the inside and almost all belongings in the house broken, mattresses shredded, glass and furniture broken. Of the items retrieved from the house, items of interest that were found were a rope, a noose, bottles of bleach, a hunting knife, and a 22 caliber bullet. A computer with the recovered search history was also found. The search history indicated that the last search that had been conducted was how to break a neck. There was also evidence to suggest a search had been done about how to use rat poison and how to clean up with bleach. Officers were also knocking on doors in the neighborhood and looking for clues in the yards that morning. Saturday afternoon, an FBI agent began visiting neighbors of John Skelton. Additional agents arrived later in the day, along with investigators from the Michigan State Police. Tanya Skelton spent most of the day at the Morency Police Station assisting FBI agents and Michigan State Police officers. Saturday evening, officers from several agencies converged at the Skelton residence, and a state police helicopter with thermal imaging equipment made several passes over the neighborhood Saturday night.
the Skelton's minivan was confiscated and towed away. An announcement was made via the fire department radio that a rescue effort would get underway at 7.30 a.m. that Sunday. Sunday, November 28, 2010. Morning. About 230 volunteers from area fire departments and the community registered at the fire station to join the search teams. In addition to ATVs, team searchers combed ditches and woods looking for evidence of the children. The search was focused on two areas that John Skelton was known to visit. Harrison Lake State Park, southeast of Fayette, and an area in the vicinity of White Pine Highway and Lime Creek Road. Additional teams of FBI agents interviewed neighbors and examined property. Sunday afternoon, the Michigan State Police Mobile Crime Lab arrived at the Skelton House, and officers worked inside and out before boarding up the back door and leaving the scene. Monday, November 29, 2010, morning. The search continues. After evaluating new information, the FBI directed searchers at mid-morning to travel to Williams County, Ohio, to search a campground and along roadsides. At the morning press conference, Chief Weeks announced that John Skelton lied about his connection to Joanne Taylor, the woman he earlier claimed had possession of his sons. Tuesday, November 30th, 2010, morning. Searchers were sent to areas along Mulberry Road north of Morency, continuing to explore areas that Skelton was known to frequent. Nothing is ever found. In 2007, John had written a poem entitled The Dumpster about a little boy whose body was found in a dumpster. The poem detailed the thoughts of the boy as he died. It was shared on his MySpace page. Hello, Mama. I see your fuzzy face. I hear your heartbeat and feel your warm embrace. I feel you tremble. Don't be scared. What did I do, Mom? What did I say to make you put me down and run away? Are you late for school? Well, that can wait. I'm your little boy, so please, Mom, stay. I'm cold and alone in this metal room with plastic bags and a worn-out broom. Nobody hears me call for you. Come back, Mommy, because I need you. It's my dying breath, and I see a glow. It's an angel from heaven and he's taking me home. So I'm sure after listening to that timeline and the background and the facts of the case, um, listeners probably have questions like we have questions. Um, Some of my main questions, or actually my main question, uh, really is why did John tell so many different stories? I, I really don't understand the need for all of the different versions. I mean, were they, is he legitimately trying to throw the police off or maybe slow them down or something? But as reported by the state line observer, here are his stories. 
First came the story about giving his children to a mysterious woman named Joanne Taylor. That was followed by a report of a man named Virgil who arranged for the children to be taken away. Later, Skelton said he was the one who drove away with the children and he gave clues to their location that he said were based on dreams. I mean, this is very odd to me. And either he is a brilliant kidnapper, criminal, or he just has some serious mental health issues. Yes. I mean, it sounds like he is almost making it up as it goes along. Please catch him in one thing. And they're like, oh, well, what about this? And he's like, oh, well, okay. It must be that thing as well. Like, like, oh, it, you, and he doesn't want to admit culpability. So he's like, well, it's a dream. It must be a dream, this this thing that, that uh, I'm thinking of. So Brandon is struggling because I'm making a face now. Like, are you effing kidding me right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's what, yeah, exactly. And that's what the, I think, I'm sure the police had the same reaction. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But I mean, but so, so you truly believe that he kind of, was just making it up as he went along and was just, into, but to what end? Throughout all this, John seems really bad at this. <laughs> I, apologies for he, laughing. He's, but. He, he's, I don't know if it's pathological line, because pathological, you know, there is no cause if it's, if it's pathological. There's no reason for it. But with John, there's a reason for it. It's, a, it's because he wants to get what he wants to get. But he's really bad at doing that. He's really—he's not—he's not a smart guy, uh, from what I can see from this. And so, when he says one story, he's not thinking one step ahead. And then, and the police catch him in that between steps, and he's like, "Oh well, wait. Oh well, okay. Uh, it's this this next thing that's completely different uh, from what I said before." Okay. Yeah. Okay. I see where you're going. I see where you're going. So the next question that I have um, is. John's parents and his family um, have long throughout this entire ordeal have maintained that they know, quote unquote, that the kids are fine and the kids are okay and all of that. My, I don't, I don't understand why his parents are so convinced that the kids are fine. Is it because they're in denial about John's mental health issues? Like most parents, do they truly feel like their child could never do this type of thing? I think that's part of it. I think uh, uh, they don't want to consider the possibility that their son is the murderer yeah. of their grandchildren. Uh, well. I'm kind of mystified by it too because uh, sources indicate that that they didn't have a great relationship with John. John didn't have a great relationship with them. Um, so for them to rally around him at this point in time is, I guess, admirable in a sense, but also it's John's admitting that he did this thing, which is, which, which, which is criminal. Would, would you say that maybe his parents and just based off of what you said, are maybe <clears throat> kind of going with or supporting John because he is the lesser of two evils, his parents have maintained that Tanya was abusing the boys, just like John had maintained That's true. that. That's so true. my feeling is, okay, I wonder, now basing it just off of what you just said, 
I wonder if maybe they're looking at the two of them and saying, well, John is a better parent than Tanya was. Look at Tanya. She was a registered sex offender. And John thinks that she was abusing the boys, though there has never been any evidence that she was. Um, perhaps the parents are more, more in the inclined to support their son, regardless of his stories. That seems very likely to me, actually. Uh, it seems like, yes, uh, we are going to believe our son is a great father and he would do whatever he had to do to protect his children. But uh, on the flip side of that, I would also, why aren't they more concerned about where the kids are? Why aren't they more concerned about that? I it, think it, it bothers me. For the same reason John claims is that if they know, or if somebody knows besides John, then somehow Tank can get those boys back. So are you suggesting that John's parents know where the boys are? No, I would, I would not go that far. Um, I think John's played this tragically very in, in, in the, the regard that he can save his own skin that he hasn't told a soul. So, and just in our last question, uh, you stated that you kind of thought that John was kind of flying by the seat of his pants and is making it up and he's not a smart guy and all this, but for the fact that he has been able to do this and leave no evidence whatsoever of where those boys are, doesn't that kind of make him a really smart guy? No, I think it's really great legal advice from his attorney. Ooh, okay, well, that does make sense. I, I think he was told, and this is, we're getting into theory land here, but uh, let me digress a little bit in that he, he was informed that if no one knows where the children are, no one can find a body, then he, he can't is, be prosecuted for something he can't like be murder or right. kidnapping in the first degree or anything remotely like that. Exactly. He can't be prosecuted for kidnapping, which he could, he would not get life in prison for. Right. Right. So to, let's see what you're saying. Let's yeah, see what you're saying. To not spend the rest of his life in prison, his attorney advised him never tell anybody ever where the kids are. Just to, again, we're getting into theory land. I apologize, but that's no apologies. That's what we're here for. <laughs> Just saying. Um, <clears throat> so, and you had a couple of questions. I mean, my other question was why has no evidence been found, but uh, over all this time, but I, I don't think that that's answerable at all. I just, it mystifies me that there has been zero evidence found as to where the kids are, what happened to them, who took them, if someone did take them, mm -hmm. or if John took them somewhere, who has them, if he killed them, why is there no evidence as to where yeah. the bodies are and all of that? It's not for lack of trying, I think. No, I agree. In this, I agree. In this case, the police have, have done pretty much everything they possibly can do. I completely agree. I, I, com I applaud the police for bringing in the FBI when they did. They brought them in very early on, which was a very wise move. <clears throat> they they had the community out searching for them, which again was a very wise move. They put that Amber Alert out almost immediately. I think it was one minute after or a couple minutes after uh, Tanya called them. They put the Amber, the Amber Alert out. Um, I think that was very, very wise. I think the, the police really have done a great job here. It's just very unfortunate that there isn't a quote unquote 
crime scene for them to investigate. Right. They, they don't know where to start their investigation. Any crime starts with the scene of the crime. And since they don't know what the scene of the crime was, they don't know where to start. Right. So it makes it a lot more difficult to investigate anything if you don't have a starting point. Exactly. So Kate, next question. Why, after the kids had been removed from school and brought to a different state, uh, was there not monitored visitation? That's a fantastic question. I do not know why Tanya's attorney, when she filed for divorce, would not have brought that up and said, listen, this has happened before. We are worried about the children being alone with John at any given time because we believe since this has already happened once that it's possible it might happen again. To me, that kind of would have been the first thing I would have brought up. Uh, since it had already happened, I mean, I get it. If you know, it it had, if there was just the threat there, um, if nothing had ever happened before, but he'd already done it once. He removed the children from school, unbeknownst to Tanya, uh, and took them to Florida without her knowledge or permission. And she had to get the authorities involved mm -hmm. to have them retrieved. Yeah. It just makes no sense to me. Uh, I I I wonder about that that discourse between the attorney and. And, and Tanya, and I would say that uh, it's, it's questionable. There's, there's, there's reason to wonder why was this permitted? Was John permitted to see the children when this 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 ordeal took place? When she had to drive all the way down to Florida, get a lawyer in Florida, uh, meet yeah, John agreed, with his lawyer agreed, in Florida. But she can't point blank tell her husband that her husband can't see the children. So he has to be able to see them, which I understand, and that makes it better for divorce. But make the visitation monitored. Don't make it, for lack of a better term, like a free-for-all, that he's able to take them wherever he wants and, and do whatever. It should have been monitored. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a bit of a mess when it comes to that visitation. It should have been done differently. He has every right, of course, to see his children, but it should have been monitored visitation. It should not have been him allowed to be alone with his children. Um, I, and again, I don't know what Tanya told her attorney. I don't know how that went down. Last question. Had John ever made any threats to his previous wife regarding taking custody back, either legally or Ill illegally, of their daughter? So this is, this is from John's first marriage where he had a daughter and they they the marriage ended in divorce and he uh, the what the ex-wife moved out of state with their daughter my understanding is he completely lost custody of his daughter he had no custody with I, her i think no i think he had visitation rights but moving out of state just really made Would that make it hard yeah. yeah but and i think he was i think he was very damaged by that yes um but to my knowledge i don't know that he made any threats to his previous wife, I, I honestly, I could not find a lot about his previous wife. Hmm. So I do, I cannot say positively in any direction about that. Um, but um, I do believe that he was very damaged by the loss of custody of his daughter uh, from his first marriage. Theories. So my theory I believe that the father, John Skelton, knew very well what he would do with these three boys. I think he had it planned 
I don't think it was an accident. I think that he killed them. I don't believe he gave them to anyone. I don't believe there was an underground sanctuary place or anything like that. I don't think that he gave them to anyone. I think he killed his boys. He had the thought possibly initially of taking them somewhere, which is where all of the stories came from. But I think he was so enraged by the fact that his wife was filing for divorce and so broken from his previous marriage where he lost custody that he decided he was going to take his ultimate revenge out on his kids. And I think either he started in a fit of rage or he built up that fit of rage and he killed these boys. I think that he researched online how to break a, a, a small child's neck as this research has shown. And I think that he snapped the necks of all three of his little boys. I think that he drove to Holiday City in Ohio with the boys' bodies, with the intention of getting rid of the bodies in Holiday City. While he was driving, he realized that his phone was on and it suddenly occurred to him that his phone could be tracked. So then he decides to drive back towards Morency and then he turns off his phone. He throws the boys' bodies in a wooded area with dense vegetation, um, twisting his ankle in the process. I think realizing he would likely be find, found out, John attempts to concoct a story about how his ankle was injured, saying that he was going to kill himself. He goes back to the house. He packs up a bunch of the kids' clothes. He drives them to the aunt's house along with the kids' toothbrushes and stuff and gives the aunt the impression that he is going to kill himself. I think all of that was a giant cover story. He had already killed the boys. He'd already gotten rid of their bodies to throw off the police or and not necessarily throw off the police, but draw out the police investigating because he thought the longer it takes police to figure out that something is amiss with the children and they're not really missing, the wider timeline it gives me, the more time it gives the bodies to be covered with water, animals to get to them, and all of this. I think he honestly was a very smart man. I think he did all of this deliberately. So part of my reasoning for really believing that John Skelton killed his children is that the oldest, Andrew, was nine years old when this would have taken place. Um, and nine years old is old enough to know how to call 911. Um, nine years old is old enough to, if you were um, taken by somebody and staying somewhere else uh, and had access to a TV, you would see the news reports. Um, you know, and obviously as the kids have gotten older, they would have access to the internet. They would have access to any number of tools in which they would find people looking for them. Uh, so I, I really think that they would have seen a news report. They would have seen it on the internet um, or something of that nature um, and know that, hey, those kids look just like we do. We should contact the authorities, uh, especially now. So um, that is part of the basis for my, um, for my theory. On the flip side, 
my alternate theory, which bothers me a great deal that the kids' bodies have never been found. There's never been a tooth. There's never been a bone. There's never been an article of clothing. Nothing has ever been found. So the, my flip side theory is John did give them to someone and it's an organization that very few people know about. And I think that the kids were trafficked from there. I think John gave these kids or was given the impression that whoever he gave the kids to would be taking care of the kids. And I think he ultimately gave his kids to someone who trafficked them somewhere else. And that's why there is no evidence of those kids anywhere that they were taken out of the country. Not immediately, but they were trafficked from state to state and removed from the country and probably are no longer alive at this point. But I think that they were trafficked. So I have two theories and it bothers me that I have two theories based on the lack of evidence and based on the different stories. I think John is a narcissist. And the more tragic part is that he's a dumb narcissist. He's a dumb guy who thinks he's a smart guy. In two cases, he tries to make a plan. And that plan doesn't go the way he thought it would go. And something happens that interrupts that plan. And he doesn't know what to do. But he doesn't freeze really. He tries to adjust or adapt and it doesn't go well from then on when he tried to uproot the kids from school and and take them away to florida he did not expect after picking them up at school that the school would call tanya and tanya would then contact john and ask what are you doing with the kids i think he expected to be in florida by that time and say, ha, I got the kids now, and fight it out from Florida with the support structure of his parents, family from Florida, possibly a job. He wanted to make it, because at that point in time, he was unemployed, so he wanted to buy time to get himself situated in Florida with support structure so he could look better in the eyes of the law to be able to have complete custody of his children. But Tanya interrupted that, and... He tries to adapt from there, tries to say, oh, no, we're just, it's going on, we're, it's a long vacation we're going on, but I'm going to enroll the children in school on this vacation, also I'm going to get a job on this vacation, which makes no sense whatsoever. That's not how I would spend my vacation. <laughs> uh, so after that first attempt at skedaddling the kids away, which failed miserably, he realizes he put himself in a worse position. Now Tanya's finally for a divorce. He's going to. She's going to get sole custody of the kids because he's still in his terrible position of no job. Now I just tried to kidnap these kids and go to Florida without letting my wife know. That makes me look like an irresponsible adult. So she's definitely going to get sole custody now. So he tries to make a new plan. He tries to be the smart guy again, but again, doesn't account for everything. So he makes a plan, but this plan this time because he realizes he has no options left. He realizes that with the divorce proceedings coming, he's going to lose custody of his children. Again, it's going to happen. And he has no options left. So he is extremely angry and extremely desperate. And he knows he's going to fail. And a narcissist 
cannot accept failure. So he plans to kill the children. If I can't have them, no one will. I, I don't think the internet search history is coincidental. I think it, it's, it's, it's a tell. It's directly a tell. So I think Poison was involved with the demise of the children. I think he slipped it into their food somehow on Thanksgiving night, which is very sad, very sad thing to think about. And the children passed away and he planned to get rid of the children's bodies uh, that morning, which he did. And he thought he had a lot of time on the day after Thanksgiving. He thought he had a lot of time because he wouldn't have to see his wife until 3 p.m. But he wasn't planning on doing that either. He was planning on vacating the state. He wasn't going to be around. So he goes with his children's bodies to the border of Ohio near that truck stop. And he places them in the dumpster. He knows having been at that truck stop when the garbage dumpsters are emptied. And he gets there really early in the morning and he attempts to empty the children's bodies in the, into the garbage dumpster, but it's, it's hard. And he twists his ankle somehow during the process. Then after doing so, he stays there for a little bit because again, going to the border of Ohio from Morency is supposed to be just half an hour, but it takes him a long time to get there or rather the whole round trip takes a long time. So obviously he stayed there a long time and came back and it took a while. So I think he stays there and watches the garbage dumpsters be emptied. So he's sure to make sure that their bodies are exactly. So he goes, he go he gets back home. He packs up clothing. He packs up the children's clothing, brings it to the family member. That lives, he brings it to the family member that lives nearby the aunt and gives it away thinking he'll never see these things again because he's going to leave the state. He's not planning to see anybody again. And he, he's, his plan is going the way he thought it would go so far. But Tanya calls at, I think, around 10 in the morning. Totally upends his plan. And now Tanya even says to John, I see your truck in the driveway. She identified where he is. She knows where he is now. And this is after he told her that he wasn't at the house and that exactly, or the kids were in Jackson or he was in Jackson. I forget which story this is now that either he and the kids were in Jackson or just the kids were in Jackson. Yeah, I don't remember. So, so, she, so after this point in time, John has to suspect that Tanya knows something. And so he's now, just like Tanya was trying to run up the time to keep John from leaving to go to Florida back in uh, September, I believe it was, John's trying to... to run up time with Tanya and keep the story going in order to buy time for himself. But it doesn't work out because the police call him almost immediately after Tanya calls him. And now he knows he can't run. So he has to keep making up story after story after story. And of course, like he's really bad at this. He can't think that far ahead and he doesn't. And his story keeps changing. And so it, it, it just keeps going to such a point where the story keeps changing and now it's to a point where John's in prison now. And also his family knows, or they know what he's been charged with. They know what he, he's, he's accused of, and he can't admit to his family that he did this mm. because it's his family. He doesn't want to, he does, and also he doesn't want to appear to society. Who would want to? Right. And if I was his attorney and he confessed to me that he did murder the boys, I would absolutely tell him not to say anything. 
also for his own survival now that he's in prison. Yes. If he admits that he has killed children while he's in prison, he puts himself in immense danger. And and the sad thing is, it's 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 sad because he gets out in five years. So, is it was it worth it? He's a dumb guy who thinks he's a smart guy. When the pastor came to speak to him, yep, I believe I'm not sure if this is confirmed or not. I believe he thought it would be a private conversation. He he said to the pastor, "The kids have gone home," and. I think you, Pastor, know what that means. What do you interpret that to mean? I think it means he's talking to a pastor. I think it means that they have gone to heaven. heaven. So you think that he was confessing to the pastor that he killed them? Yes. And the pa- he did not realize the pastor was, would report that to the public because he's, he just didn't think that would, that would happen. It, it, it's like what, in, the, in these moments where he thinks that there's no consequences, it's when he reveals himself. So we have heard theories, and uh, where where do you sit, Brandon? What's true enough for me to believe is that there is no closure for Tanya, which is very sad. And I really do hope that my theory is incorrect. I pray to God. I really do hope those kids are alive and that they're safe and that they're happy. And that somehow they f- they reconnect with their mother. I agree. I think regardless of um, which theory is true enough, and frankly, all of them are possibly true enough. Uh, there's no good outcome, um, at least for Tanya. He she still does not have her boys back, and she has no closure and no resolution. Um, so it is, it's not, it's not a good ending for her in any way. Um, I think she, she needs to know, uh, at this point, uh, what has happened to the boys. Uh, I think both of us probably agree that they likely are not alive anymore, but, um, she needs to know either way. Exactly. Yeah, I I agree. One other thing I think is, is that, uh, Throughout all this, John plays the victim, and it's it's very upsetting. And at, at every point in time, he could have gone another way. He could have done the right thing. Uh, he he never he he seems to have this persecution complex. And the weird thing is that he could have gone to the authorities at any time if he if he really wanted to get custody of his children. He could have talked to the authorities. Uh, I think he, he, he felt uh, that he was uh, losing and he couldn't take that. He took matters into his own hands. Uh, and it's, it's very sad. It is very sad. There were many places that John, as you stated, really could have done the right thing and he didn't, he chose not to, he, in his narcissistic state, chose to, uh, quote unquote, know, know better than everybody else and, uh, you know, what to do with his children and how to act and what story to tell. And none of it ever made any sense. And um, ultimately, uh, all he did was hurt everyone involved. 
Um, and eventually, I think his family will learn that uh, what he did to his kids and um, that will not have a good outcome for him. Uh, and eventually everyone will learn exactly what happened here. Uh, at least I hope. I, I think eventually the kids uh, will be found or, or, or they will find an article of clothing that points them in the right direction uh, or whatever. I, I only hope that it's sooner rather than later. Um, I think everyone involved deserves to know the truth. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and it's, it's on anybody listening. It's on us to remember these boys, remember that they're missing. And I agree. And it's now up to the audience to determine, do you think any of our theories are true enough? To see time-progressed photos of the Skelton children, please go to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children missingkids.org. If you have any information as to the whereabouts of these kids, please call 911 or 1-800-THE-LOST or the Michigan State Police at 1-517-636-0689. Thank you. This ends this episode of True Enough. This episode was produced, written, and edited by your co-hosts, Catherine Duvall and Brandon McCown. Thanks go out to our sources, which are listed in our show notes. All music was provided by Anchor.fm. True Enough is created by us and distributed through Anchor. You can find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash true-enough. From there, you can message us, so please send us your questions, thoughts, opinions, and hate mail about any of our episodes. Also, please subscribe to us in whichever podcast app you like so you don't miss our next episode where we try to determine what is true enough to be believed.